0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: It's only a kick. A jump.
0: A block. It's only a serve. It's
1: only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
0: Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Today, I'm I'm very excited to interview the author uh, Mark Weston, who wrote The Savior Fish: Life and Death on Africa's Greatest Lake. First, I just want to say welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, uh, Mark's in the UK, and I'm in New Zealand, so we're at the opposite ends of the earth. But with the uh, the the wonderful technology we have today, it's so amazing. I can actually see him. We're on video. And we're going to talk about his book, but also his experiences in Lake Victoria in Africa. It was just, it was an amazing read. It just really pulled me in, and it's a part of the world uh, that that Mark really uh, opens a door, and you can really see inside it. So, so we're going to get to that today. But Mark, first, can you just kind of give our listeners your background? Like, you know, where did you grow up, and and where did this connection to nature come from? In your life?
1: Yeah, um, I grew up in Kent in the southeast of England. Um, wasn't any more interested in nature than anybody else as a kid, really. Um, I got into bird watching in my 30s. Uh, that was really my first door into it. And then when I got to East Africa, um, which was because of other work uh, reasons, um, I went to places like the Serengeti and a few wildlife uh, reserves there and thought it was really amazing. But really, my intense interest happened when I arrived on Ukerewe Island in Lake Victoria um, and lived there for two years, and just came across um, this fishing industry and the fishing basically crisis that's happened there, and became interested in in that way more from a sort of conservation uh, perspective than a particular love of. Uh, the fish although I liked eating some of the fish and in other African lakes uh, which don't have so many crocodiles and hippos I've snorkeled among some of the similar fish so and they're, they're beautiful fish but yeah so that, that's really it there's no sort of deep background in nature it's sort of come come about because of being ending up in this place where nature was so important to to human lives
0: Right, but do, your background's more uh, writing, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. and, and reporting, and and working with. I mean, do you you work with some nonprofits?
1: Or is, yeah, I'm a yeah. consultant and writer on international development. So I work with universities, nonprofits, the UN, people like that, writing about things like public health, education, demography, justice, things like that. And yeah, now it's, a, it's a little bit on the environment.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know. It's fascinating. It's it's fascinating. So to set this kind of all up because I, I was curious cause I was looking for it in the book and then, and then I finally got it. But
1: how did you find yourself in Lake Victoria of all places on earth? Well, I traveled in West Africa about 10 years ago for six months um, to write my first book, the ringtone and the drum, and was trying to find a way to get back there um, having come back to Europe. And my wife um, works for the British council and teaching English and She saw this job in Tanzania, uh, teaching, uh, doing teacher training. And one, um, it was a a project with like 35 uh, teacher trainers involved, and they were sent to different teacher training colleges around the country. And they're all dotted around obscure remote regions in Tanzania. And we were sent to the one on Okerewa Island, which is probably the remotest of all of them. So she was posted there for two years. And because I'm a freelance consultant, I just need an electricity uh, connection and an internet connection this is a great opportunity to explore rural um africa and also east africa which i didn't have any experience of until then so we ended up there for two years um, as the only foreigners living on this island in Lake victoria
0: yeah it was fascinating uh, how, how you tell that story and it, it, did you have when you got, i guess when you when you left uh europe did you have an intention of writing a book or was it when you were there you just the experiences and you're like wow i've really
1: got to write this down No, I thought I would probably write articles, um, travel articles and things like that, Um, but not a book. It was only when I got there and found this massive uh, ecological story uh, Mm -hmm. that I thought it's probably worth a book rather than an article. It's important enough to write a book about rather than just a couple of articles.
0: Yeah, no, it is. And it it, it captures, as we get into it, I think it really captures um, kind of a spotlight on what's going on uh, around Earth, especially like I – I could empathize with the people there because I, I feel it here in New Zealand. So, so we'll talk about that because really quick, because the, the book title is the savior fish. And, and I'm, I want to talk about their impacts a little bit later in the interview, but just to set this up for everybody, who is the savior fish?
1: The savior fish, um, is the, the Nile perch, Lattes niloticus, um, which is a large predator can grow to the, grow to about six feet in length, swims very fast, fleshy, um, and was venerated actually in ancient Egypt, further down the Nile. So Lake Victoria is the main source of the Nile. Um, but Nile perch didn't appear in Lake Victoria until the 1950s, for reasons we'll discuss um, yes. <laughs> later. Um, but it was venerated down in uh, ancient Egypt, way down the lake. So it was, existed in the river. And there's actually a cemetery um, near Esna, near the town of Esna in Egypt, where which is full of buried Nile perch, which have been sort of mummified, and they're still there.
0: Oh, yeah. It's crazy some of the stuff they're digging up. I I just – the the stuff going on in Africa or in Egypt, it's amazing. That's that's another discussion for another day. Okay, so we have the Nile perch. This is an introduced species. So we'll get to their impacts because I wouldn't call it a savior fish for – oh, maybe for a little while for the people there. Uh, But as the story unfolds, we'll talk about that. But to set it up, Lake Victoria – can we talk about the history there because you, you do paint this beautiful but difficult picture today of uh, the peoples there. But before the Europeans arrived there, what was kind of like Victoria like that, that region or did you kind of get into that history? Because really the post-European times you've seen the impacts, but before Europeans came and, and started exploiting the area, what was it like there?
1: Well, obviously, it's it's a very ancient lake. It's in the Rift Valley. Um, It's the second largest lake in the world by surface area, but it's actually very shallow. Um, And and if if you measure it by the volume of water, it's not even Africa's largest lake. At its deepest point, it's 80 metres deep. The average is about half that. Whereas, for example, Lake Tanganyika nearby has parts that are 1,500 metres deep. And it's in the tropics. So sometimes it's completely dried up during, during history. And the last time that happened was Fifteen thousand years ago, after a huge and prolonged drought that affected all of Africa and quite a lot of Asia, um, after being dry for three thousand years, it slowly refilled. And because it's in the tropics, there was rapid procreation of species. So, from hardly any species fifteen thousand years ago, um, by the early twentieth century, it became one of the most species diverse bodies of freshwater on Earth. And before the Europeans arrived um, in sort of late eighteen hundreds. Um, farming was the main activity around the lake, not fishing. Fishing was only done a couple of months a year when there was no cultivation to be done. And people fished from the beaches or from dugout canoes using a variety of, sort of old techniques like hooks carved out of wood, spears, papyrus basket traps, things like that. And people um, there today said their ancestors used to be able to sort of stand on the beach and uh, catch the fish with their bare hands. There were so many fish there and then the Europeans arrived in the late 1800s. <laughs> All right. And then and then what? <laughs> because everywhere
0: we go on earth, where you know I, I I just had another interview talking about the American West and and then I I did interview a, a the history of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast down here. The Europeans come. And my my ancestry is European, so you know, I, I I can highlight this a little bit. It's like a big boot that just stomps out a lot of life, right? Like what, what happened in that part of the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, that happened in the long run in East Africa. So when the Europeans, the Germans and the British uh, colonized East Africa in the late 1800s, um, they needed to um, balance the colonial books to ensure that there was as much money coming out as they were putting into it. Um, so they wanted to transform fishing from what had been a subsistence activity into a, a commercial enterprise. So in, um, I think, about 1905, the British imported flax gill nets to the lake, which are huge, um, durable nets that hang in the water, and they entangle anything that swims into them. So much more efficient than the the local uh, techniques had been. Um, Sail-propelled boats were were brought to the lake. Railways connected the lake to uh, the big coastal cities and to uh, Nairobi. And for the first time, fishermen were organised into fleets. So the British basically modernized the fishing industry. And lots of farmers became fishermen, cash was available, people came from other parts of Africa, um, and there was a bit of a fishing boom. But these new techniques kind of took their toll on fish stocks quite quickly. Within a decade or two, catch rates um, began to decline. People started using nets with smaller holes, smaller mesh sizes, mm-hmm. um, so they declined even more. Um, and some species, uh, some of the lake's native species, went extinct. Like um there's one called the Ingege tilapia, which was very popular, that went um, extinct. And things like catfish and other large fish um, also um, went into steep decline. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's
0: uh, it, it, it's a tough story to tell, but it 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 definitely sheds light on where we are uh, conservation wise and the uh, the biomes from around the planet. You know, we're still feeling a lot of uh, the ripples in time from hundreds of years ago, you know, in, in the Americas, uh, here in Asia, or in the Southern Pacific. So, yeah, it, it, it's it, it's engrossing. When I got to that point in the book, I was like, wow, you know, it, 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 I just had so much. Uh, I could relate to that so much after seeing uh, around here where I live. But kind of talk about the area for you. Because I I, I kind of build up to tell the story of the Nile Perch and everything. But what was it like living there for you? You know, going from Europe, you've been in Africa before, but, you know, you do write it beautifully. But just if you can kind of give a brief synopsis, you know, uh, I guess the the two only white people there showing up that they haven't seen in a long time. Right. And and, and so how did they treat you? Uh, How did you feel uh, living in that part of Africa?
1: Yeah, quite daunted at first. Um, Because we were going to be the only foreigners living there, we didn't really speak the language. Swahili was the local language. I started studying it as soon as I found we were going to be there. Hardly anyone on the island speaks English, so that was a bit of a barrier. And at first, yeah, we were a big novelty for people because I don't think any white people had lived on the island for decades before us. Um, And you you only get the very occasional tourist who sort of strays there from the mainland and quickly leaves because it's pretty pretty remote. Um, but it didn't take didn't take too long we rented a small um house sort of one one story house and it didn't take too long um for our neighbors to kind of accept us um particularly as our swahili improved and crash course self-teaching swahili and their kids there's loads of kids around our house and they kind of were very excited to have us two there um foreigners um white people with laptops um, and, you know, we had a bit of electricity in our house occasionally, and they didn't, it was a very poor um, community and the kids, you know, we quickly befriended the kids and threw them their parents. And now, um, a few years later, we've still got lots of friends there, and we still go back as often as we can. Um, and yeah, we keep in touch, I call a couple of them every, every month from Europe, and yeah, it's, it's a fantastic experience in the end, um, which we you know, very privileged to have and completely different to any experience we'd ever had before, before when we traveled in Africa had mostly been in urban areas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and moving around quite fast. So living in one place for two years meant we could develop long-term relationships and get past that barrier of us being foreign really, and become part of the, of the community really.
0: Right. Yeah, it is. I I just know it's just moving here, you know, it, it, when you leave uh, your childhood home and, and your, your culture, and go and and live in another culture, it really is life-changing. And, you know, I I always like to tell people, go travel if you can, go live overseas Mm -hmm. if you can. Uh, yeah I agree. Yeah, it just it opens up your mind to to a yeah. whole different worldview mm-hmm. so i i'd like to see to ask about like kind of the wildlife in the area that that's still remaining i mean you know we're not talking about like the big five elephants even if they i don't know if they are there but um you know what are some of the the other species you, you mentioned bird watching and i and i and i can definitely relate to you because that's something i've picked up in the last couple of years is, is i really enjoy going out and it's like playing pokemon go you know looking for birds yeah. and i have i use the ebird app and i always log what i see um but what, what were some of the other animals there that
1: that you, you routinely saw yeah i mean i took my took my binoculars obviously because expecting the bird life to be impressive and it was um mm-hmm. there's a big big variety of species there's hundreds of different species around Lake victoria but it's not they're not great they're not huge in number um i thought there'd be you know clouds of birds but it was nothing like that it was the island that we live lived on Ukerewe, has been deforested um, quite dramatically in recent decades. So there's less, there's fewer habitats for the, for the birds, um, but there were things like fish eagles, weavers, kingfishers, fish eagles. You only occasionally saw, but it's spectacular when you do see them. Um, other animals, um, there used to be elephants on Ukerewe and, uh, uh, but they got hunted um, to extinction. Um, there used to be chimpanzees, um, but again, they got hunted to extinction. Although, when I was there in March, there were rumours. I heard a couple of rumours that there were still some chimps on the island, but I only mm-hmm. heard that on our on our last day or our penultimate day there, so couldn't go and check it out. So next time, we're definitely going to go and check it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Other um, and it's it's the lake is like an hour away from the Serengeti. So in the Serengeti, there's loads yeah. of big big yeah, five and big big yeah. game, and in the lake itself, there are hippos and crocodiles. But crocodiles yeah. are declining rapidly because they get killed first of all they got killed by the brits when they were there Um, and now they get killed by locals because they're a big danger to people who use the lake to wash in and drink from and uh, and swim in and stuff so people use the lake a lot and crocodile attacks are quite common common yeah 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 they are one and the hippos too (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah hippos are really dangerous um they kill more animals than any other kill more people than any other animal in africa apart from yeah. mosquitoes but we didn't see yeah. many we saw a couple of hippos from the right. island we heard of one occasion where a hippo had right. sort of eaten off someone's face without killing oh, them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah they're really aggressive so you've got to be careful um when you swim in the lake you gotta you don't want to stay in for very long yeah i think i don't risks? know it's
0: like stay on land or go swimming i don't know what to do
1: in africa yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah i think there are well, safer lakes
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Well, one thing I found interesting um, was your story about bats and kind of the myths there. Uh, can you just talk about how the locals feel about the bats there?
1: Yeah, um, they. Uh, we had a woman who uh, became who became a cleaner for for us in our in our house. You don't have to pay very much for a cleaner there, and it gives someone a job. So we overcame our sort of guilt and get, and gave her this job as a cleaner. And she told us that. Um, when she'd been working as a cleaner in a church, um, she'd managed to clean the whole church um, when the church opened, but couldn't get rid of hundreds of bats that were hanging from the ceiling. And the only only way um, to get rid of them was they, she concluded was to pray over them. Um, she and the pastor prayed, and, and they all died. All these bats. And the pastor told her that the, the bats were linked in some way to sorcery. So there's a lot of witchcraft on Akira where Everybody believes in witchcraft, and bats are, s- are seen as an emissary from witches um, who cast a spell on you and they send the bats to kind of um implement the spell and we had a bat once in our house very small one uh, um one night and we told our name our, our cleaner about it um and she she was really worried for us and said we needed to pray to protect ourselves and she left a bible in our house until the till the threat had passed so people are quite scared of bats um not just on Ukurewe, but in quite a lot of uh, east africa and in some I've, I've heard that in some parts they, they persecute them. Throw stones at them and, and slingshots and things to to kill them because they're so worried about them. But we saw loads of bats and an amazing amount of bats at night ar- around the island. Fruit bats and smaller bats.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I was you some of the species that you might have saw, like, like fruit bats yeah. and. Some That's of the, the only one I know animals. about. But yeah, so yeah, much
1: smaller ones. Yeah,
0: yeah, I know. It's uh, it's unfortunate, and we were going to speak to a a bat researcher there, and we still may try to get get a hold of her huh. in, in West Africa. And, um, I forgot which bat she was looking at, but Mm. yeah, I know that they're such an important species and they just have such a bad rap, uh, about them, you know, all around the earth, but Mm. they're just so critical to, uh, the environments they live in.
1: Yeah. Snakes as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. (laughs) Any snakes? Yeah. (laughs) You hardly ever saw a live snake, but you saw loads of dead ones that have been killed. Whenever they see a snake, they'll kill it. Oh, um, no. Uh. Yeah. So in the road, you'd always, you'd very often see dead, small, usually dead snakes.
0: Yeah. 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 That's another species. Yeah. And they're so yeah, critical, need, too. Yeah.
1: They both need a good PR
0: do. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying to right. recover them. But yeah, like we did the black bomba, uh, you know, one of Africa's deadliest. And and they're mm. so shy. They just, they don't want to mess with mm. you. They just want to be yeah. left alone. Anyways. Yeah. But let's go back to the lake. So uh, here we are. This okay. I, I guess to kind of set it up is, and and, and I forgot the scientist when I wrote this uh, question down. Darwin's dream pond. So Lake Victoria is known as Darwin's dream pond. What do they mean by that?
1: Yeah, this was a science, Dutch scientist called T. Goldschmidt, that's and it, he was talking. It. He was he was talking about the. Um, biodiversity um, among the fish, but also about the amazing speed at which the uh, lake's most common fish, um, the cichlids, um, evolved. Um, so the Darwin idea was the, you know, the speed of evolution. So um, when the lake began to fill up uh, 12,000 years ago, it's thought that there were four or five cichlid species which filtered in from nearby lakes. Um, cichlids are small, bony fish um, that evolve very quickly to adapt to new environments. They can change colour, size, shape, um, feeding and sheltering strategies, diet and swimming speeds to adapt to new, uh, new realities and, and, and new environments. And it takes most species a very long time to evolve into another species, as you know. Um, like Darwin's finches and the Galapagos took uh, two million years to evolve from one species into 12, for example. But the cichlids went from four or five species 12,000 years ago to about 500 at the start of the 20th century, which is a new species every 30 years. And it was this rapid speciation that attracted scientists to study the lake, and uh, you know, they were so amazed by this rapid uh, fluorescence of of biodiversity there. So when I guess we know
0: when, but to to, to lead up to uh, when did things change? You talked about when the the British showed up, and the peoples there would fish occasionally. It wasn't a big thing, but now they're industrializing it. So. They, they were giving them all these nets and everything, and then they introduced the saviour fish, right? Mm-hmm. So is this when things started to change,
1: or were things already changing, and then they introduced the Nile perch? No, not really. So the, the, the episode yeah. I was talking about before, when um, yeah. the first sort of decline in fish species, mm-hmm. that was mostly larger fish, which were caught yeah. by these gill nets. The cichlids really escaped that, right, that sort right. of cull. Um, and that was in like the 1930s, 1940s that that decline happened. Okay. Um, so they needed a new way to balance the books um, and to make the fish, make the lake commercially viable. Um, mm-hmm. So they looked at um, the cichlids, which were basically worthless for eating, um, mm-hmm. are too small and bony mostly. And they thought, how can we turn this into something that's commercially viable? Um, so they then um, introduced the Nile perch, which had been successful in a couple of other African lakes. And they thought that would eat the cichlids and the perch itself would be, a, an attractive fish from local and regional markets. It turned out to be an attractive fish for international markets as well. Mm-hmm. So if they introduce mm-hmm. that to the lake and it eats the cichlids, you turn all these cichlids into cash, basically right. to help the, help the colony make some make some export revenues.
0: Yeah, I, and I guess I'll, I'll let people read the book to <laughs> – unless you want to tell the story about leading up to the Nile Perch being dumped in there, I was like, wow – Wow. Wow. If I could only bend there. Um, So what happened? They introduced the Nile
1: perch. Yeah. So they ignored the advice of, well, they they didn't ignore it. They listened to the advice of scientists and uh, who warned against introducing an alien species into a complex and fragile um, tropical environment. Um, You know, their kind of economic concerns outweighed their ecological concerns. Mm -hmm. And in the 1950s, they introduced um, a few juvenile Nile perch into the lake. Um, but they didn't really start appearing in nets until uh, after the British had left and um, after Tanzania and Kenya and Uganda, which are the yeah. three lakeshore countries, got their independence. Which And so it started appearing nets in about the 1970s. Um, and then it started appearing in ever greater numbers um, and a bit of a fishing boom took off in the sort of 1980s 1990s lots of more many more fishermen came to the lake um it created a lot of jobs around the lake and um, because it, it became a popular fish in like asia uh, israel um europe um so there was it was bringing a lot of cash to the lake region which had previously been very poor so lots of people gave up farming and took up fishing people came from all sorts of other african countries to fish there um Factories were built around the lake to process the fish with help from donors like the World Bank. Um, and it became a massive industry, created, I think, a quarter of a million jobs at, the, at its peak. Um, schools were built, which are still there. So it has had some lasting positive effects. And this is why local people called it the saviour fish, because with the decline of fish in the sort of 40s and 50s, um, the lake, the region had gone back to being really poor, especially as a lot of them had given up, a lot of people had given up farming to fish. Um, So there was a kind of long sort of dearth of economic activity for 20 years. So when it came along, producing all these jobs, not just for fishermen, but for people who kind of service the fishermen in some way, like mending nets, selling Mm -hmm. stuff to the fishermen, you know, opening bars, um, uh, cafes and things like that, Um, created all these jobs. So therefore they called it the saviour fish. Right. It it, it
0: does that economic impact to a community. So, and... I think that's what gets frustrating sometimes with conservation because, you know, something I've learned doing this podcast the last few years, it's like we can't go into a region and say, you can't do this because we need to save this species. And these people are fighting to stay alive. And I I think it was the DNC. Just this week or last week, they were talking about all these oil contracts that they're they're giving this exploitation of the of the rainforest, cutting down the rainforest. And they they said we're not responsible for saving the planet. You know, look at what Europe's doing. Look at what the Americas are doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I get it. I get it you know, for the people there. But
1: what does it look like today? Because that didn't last, right? No, it didn't last. Um, mm-hmm. in the by about the nineteen nineties. Uh, Nile perch was being overfished because lots of new technologies yeah. had come to the lake, much more efficient technologies than had ever been seen on it before. Trawlers, things like that. Um, mm. So, and other fish were also getting um, overfished as well because the net sizes were getting smaller and smaller. The whole the mesh sizes were getting smaller and smaller. Um, and the so the Nile perch were hunting the cichlids, were eating the cichlids and also competing with other cichlids for food. So 200 species of, about 200 of the 500 species of cichlids went extinct between the 1970s and uh, mid 1990s. And their share of the fish biomass in the lake declined from I think 80% down to about 1% um, in, the, in this period. So cichlids basically, a lot of them disappeared from the lake. Um, so some of the Nile perches food also disappeared from the lake, but the Nile Perch were also being heavily overfished. And so their numbers uh, went right down. Um, There was also pollution in the lake. So because all these humans had come to the lake, they had to cut down uh, trees to build houses, to build boats, to smoke the Nile Perch. Um, So there was deforestation and to clear the land for farmland, because you have these these humans had to be fed with stuff other than just fish. Um, So that made it easier for things like pesticides, fertilizers, uh, manure, human sewage to run off the land into the lake. So the lake became heavily polluted. There were like there's, there's these. If you fly over the lake today, there's these massive algal clouds of green or blue clouds in the lake, like huge. um, um And the lake is vast and the lakes the size of Ireland. But these algal blooms cover huge um, areas of it. And these wow. algae are feed, feeding on these excess of nutrients in the lake. And as they um, decay, they get eaten. Uh, they get well, Get decomposed by microbes, and the microbes use oxygen while they're um, decomposing the algae and um, bits of the lake. Their whole parts of the lake become deoxygenated, so more yeah. fish die, and you get these fish die-offs now, where you have like loads of fish floating on the surface of the yeah. lake, dead without any. And the locals don't know why that is, but it's probably because of deoxygenation of the le- of the of the depths of the lake. So it's a kind of perfect storm of um, overfishing, predation by this um, alien species and then mm. uh, deforestation and pollution that together has come has come together to kind of decimate the the lakes fishing industry so now that now it's the boom has absolutely turned to uh bust in the last sort of, yeah. f- 15 15 20 years
0: oh, yeah no and uh, we've we've touched upon some of the freshwater fish a crisis going around the planet because we there is a lot of you know we just got out of plastic free july and there's a lot of focus on the ocean and the fish in the ocean uh documentaries on that but in our backyards you know we're seeing mass pollution uh mm-hmm. in, in many countries you know where i live where you live uh where many of our listeners live and it's killing off a lot of uh native wildlife and fish i mean 200 species that's i know we're we're in the sixth mass extinction and that's what we're coining this this mass die off i mean that i guess it, it i know it takes a long time to declare a species extinct so when those fish start coming in like bam extinct 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 because we have mm. not seen them for 20 years wow wow that's really gonna oh yeah. that's
1: really awful yeah so, one scientist one scientist yeah. called it the greatest um, mass extinction of vertebrates in recorded history apparently
0: yeah, no. That's I haven't heard. I haven't come across that. I read that, and I was like, "Wow, you know, it's it's that that loss in such a concentrated area, and the up and down effects, up and down the the food web, and tree, and and everything, mm-hmm. all the species that depend on it." So, so I know one thing you you mentioned the fish are, are much smaller now, and now the competition for getting any now perch is is intense, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so local people will tell you that uh, you know, twenty years ago they'd easily make equivalent of say forty US dollars in a night. A boat, a a crew of fishermen would make that. Now it's difficult for them to make five dollars in a night, for example. The average weight of a caught Nile perch has has come down from fifty kilos at its peak to less than ten kilos today, because none of the big ones, or not many of the big ones, are left. And the stocks of perch in the lake and the data is not very reliable because. African data um, is generally not very reliable, but mm. it seems like stocks of Nile perch in the lake are down by about three quarters since since their peak. Um, so yeah, you don't really see the big perch anymore. And when you go to a market like in Wanza, there's a big fish market, which is the city on the lake shore, um, from which fish used to be exported abroad. Um, a lot of the fish, a lot of the Nile perch you see there are a bit below the legal minimum catch size, because the governments around the lake imposed a minimum catch size to try and stem the decline. Um, and they, they 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 imposed it once, and then the fish processing factories put pressure on them to make that um, not such a severe measure. Um, but even even now, even you know, even when they they've made the minimum catch size smaller, most of the fish you see in the market are smaller than the minimum. So there's lots illegal fish. Lots of illegal fishing going on.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: What do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now.
0: Yeah. And so for the cichlids that are remaining, has that been kind of a, a
1: savior story for them? I mean, with with less now perch, are they able to rebound a little bit? There are some signs that some species are rebounding here, partly by hybridizing with other species because the lake's so polluted. Right. Um, the female of the species can't see the male so much. And so they often uh, mate with males of other species. Uh, and mm-hmm. sometimes this results in offspring, not always, of course. Um, and sometimes this results in offspring and new kind of um, hybridized species are, are, are appearing in the lake. Um, mm-hmm. So there's less biodiversity among them. Um, but some of the some of the species are now recovering because of um, the absence of Nile perch. But there's still the pollution problem, and there's yeah. still the overfishing problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, is there talks of bringing Nile perch back in in greater numbers? Or, you know? No, no. Okay, good. Not, not
1: reintroducing it now.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now, are there any conservation? Projects ongoing in Lake Victoria. I mean, that, that's tough because you have three different countries, Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda, mm. you know, uh, to try to rehabilitate or protect or, you know, reduce pollution. Is any of that going on there?
1: Not that you see on Ukerewe yeah. Island or, the, or yeah. the shore around there. And when yeah. I've been in on the shore in, in Kenya and Uganda, I've never seen a lot. I mean, governments try to clamp down on illegal fishing. They ban trawlers and things like that. Um, and there's some encouragement for fish farming instead of fishing in the lake. Particularly, there's more of that in Kenya than in Tanzania um, to try and get fishers off the lake and also to make, make some money from the fish. Um, but yeah, not as you say, it's a bit difficult to coordinate between three governments because it's you know, the, the waters are shared between the three governments, so you need all of them to collaborate to have new initiatives but the people are so poor that it's very difficult for them to be persuaded to do other stuff because and also they're not very well educated so they haven't got other skills so you know what do you tell a fisherman who's got six kids um who if you if he doesn't feed them properly will get sick and the healthcare facilities are so terrible so there's a very good chance of them dying you you tell him stop fishing okay what else are you going to do what else am i going to do what else are you going to give me and you always hear that, that kind of response when you ask when you when you tell people about um well, when you ask people about government measures to to prevent the decline of the perch,
0: yeah, no, no, and, and that's yeah, you hear that everywhere, and it's one of the things I've learned is it's definitely conservation is local, and you know, hopefully, there's people in the area that go, okay, we want to to help uh, Lake Victoria because, yeah, it's tough, it, it's just tough, and, and do you know how they've they've weathered COVID in the last couple of years in
1: that region? Have they been doing okay? Well, Tanzania's government. Uh, president at the time was basically a covid denier and uh, he basically didn't allow any data to be published about covid so we he couldn't hear after about the 300th death they stopped producing any data and he was anti-vaccine and everything he actually ended up dying of covid um in march 2021 i think um on the island there have been anecdotally from friends there there have been outbreaks and you know quite Quite a few um, older people have died, but it's a very young population, so that has already weathered a lot of diseases, childhood diseases. So that there's a chance that they're more they're, they're robust again, more robust against COVID than we in say Europe would be with our older population that hasn't weathered all these diseases. As I say, the data is really terrible, so especially in Tanzania, so we can't really know.
0: Yeah, what's the impacts? Yeah, I just know there's there's also you know there's been. Uh, some impacts on a lot of conservation work there in africa and you know local people with tourism shut down turning to to poaching and other Mm -hmm. ways just to survive i mean just to like you said feed their six kids and yeah and how how do i tell them no don't don't go get some nile perch to feed your kids i I can't say that yeah you know even though it's a detriment to the lake it's well, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah there has been an economic effect of COVID—a definite economic effect. So, tourism to Tanzania has completely stopped for a while, um, and yeah, the, the, all the economies in in the region were affected economically by it. Um, but the Tanzania never locked down really, so economic activity yeah. in within the country continued. Just there wasn't much right. as much of it coming from outside.
0: Yeah, the international market coming yeah. in, uh, tourism, mm-hmm. tourism. So uh, the local population. What's next for them, really? I mean, because it does it seem like there's a cycle, right? Is there a cycle of exploitation? The Europeans came in, a lot of fishing, a lot of jobs. Wow, that went away for 20 years. Now perch boomed. There was a lot a boom for 20 years. Now we're in one of those low points. Is there something in the future for them on the horizon that might turn some of this around or are
1: they just kind of going to struggle for a while? well if you speak to fishermen on Airway, they'll all nearly always say that they don't want their kids to become fishermen um because they don't see any future in in the industry because they've seen their catch rates decline um as catch rates per fisherman have declined quite a lot over this period um they want to, they want them they all want their kids to get educated primarily so they can get off the island go to the big cities and try and get jobs there or get jobs abroad things like that so at the moment around the lake because of you know deforestation's made Farming less attractive as well, um, and um, as has overpopulation, so the plots of land are all really small now because they get handed down from generation to generation. So you only get a small plot of land, so you can't make any money out of it. You can only do subsistence farming on it, and subsistence farming is no longer very attractive to people in this modern world. They see it as backward thing to do, and there's no fishing. So yeah, I mean it's difficult to see a future at the moment unless there is there are conservation measure, measures to Replenish the lake, or to allow the stocks to recover, but that requires big short-term sacrifice, and that short-term sacrifice can mean disaster for individual families. So, and people haven't re- really consulted. The governments haven't really consulted local people on the ground what they think should happen. You know, because before the Europeans came, there was a very sustainable fishery on Lake Victoria, completely sustainable. A couple of months a year in certain areas, um, just just fishing from the beach or very very close to the shore. Um, so they know how to. They've got this historic knowledge of how to fish the lake sustainably, um, but nobody's really consulted them. It's been measures in, imposed from above, like bans and fines and confiscating nets and things. Um, and people don't really trust the government anyway. So that even even if you know they're not really willing to fo- follow these measures, even if they could, um, rather than being local people being consulted themselves and engaged in the process of you know restoring the lake it's it's tough it's
0: oh it's a tough- it's so tough it's so tough this is going on all around the world i mean yeah. it's going on uh in many parts of the world that have been exploited and and continue to be exploited oh uh so would you suggest people to come visit lake victoria i just went when i you sent me the book and I, I started reading, I was like, oh, Lake Victoria has this mythos, this, this mystique about it. W- would it be something like you would say, hey, if you, if you want to really get a good taste of what's going on in Africa, go to Lake Victoria. I mean, would you feel safe there? Is there like some ecotourism going on there or any sort of tourism operations there that people could go and, and see this part of the world and, you know, help stimulate some, some econ- you know, stimulate the, the local economy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm absolutely the lake's absolutely beautiful. The climate's fantastic. The people are lovely. Um, the food's great because there is still some fish and the fish is delicious. Um, there are eco-tourism places in some parts, not on Ukerewe itself, but there are hotels, guest guest houses on Ukerewa, not hotels, guest houses, um, which are okay on the islands. It's kind of pretty rugged, um, travelling. Um, but it's an incredible experience going there and you know. It's a, it's beautiful, and, and and there are different bits of the lake which are different, have different scenery. So there's islands off the Kenyan coast which are really spectacular and almost mountainous. Look at sort of low rolling hills, and then around the shore, you know, there's great beaches. Um, again, you've got the risk of getting in the water because of uh, crocodiles, <laughs> nuts, and hippos. Yes, they're are yes. attract, attractive <laughs> beaches. So if you can find, them, you can sit on them. Um, yeah, I've yeah. swum I've swum a couple of times, but I didn't stay in for very long. Um, And my my wife never swam. She was too worried. And then she watched me swimming with horror, expecting me to be dragged (laughs) underneath any any minute. Um, But yeah, tourism would hugely help. And there are these amazing wildlife parks near the lake Serengeti. You could combine a visit to the Serengeti very easily with a visit to Lake Victoria, which is just down the road. And um, Mwanza, the the coastal uh, city, the big coastal city in the Tanzanian side is a beautiful city. Um, with a really strong like, indian community so you get great indian food there um kisumu is is the similar is similar in uh, kenya another pretty attractive chilled out city um and the, the wildlife the bird life is great yeah beautiful, beautiful not abundant but it's beautiful and it's quite good if you're one of those bird watchers who like seeing difficult to see species because you don't see many of them you can tick off quite a lot um, and then Kampala is the main city on the, and Entebbe, actually, Entebbe is the main city on the Ugandan side, which is also beautiful and is quite well set up for tourism, better than the, the Tanzanian side, actually. So, yeah, that would be oh. one way of helping the lake by going there and visiting it.
0: Well, that's about the bucket list because I, I definitely like the Gorgor craters where I, I'm dying mm-hmm. to go in, in Tanzania. And so, yeah, that's down the uh, road. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say just down the road, so I can I can get up to Lake Victoria and, and mm-hmm. see what you wrote about. I mean, I really felt like I was there reading your book. I was just it was really engrossing, really well written. I just want to ask you: Are there other regions that you're aware of in Africa that that are are, are struggling? That maybe because you really shed light on, I think, an, an, an extinction crisis that. I didn't hear in four years of doing this podcast and looking for stories to tell, looking for species to tell. I really didn't understand that Lake Victoria was, was that desperate. Are there some other places in Africa that, that maybe is not quite as well known that something like this is going on? They're still feeling the effects of, you know, colonization and and the European impact or uh, other impacts that are, that are really uh, driving the, the extinction that we're seeing
1: um not that spring immediately to mind i think lake chad's another one um which is basically drying up so there are a lot of problems around there you know f- for fishermen because it really is shrinking very rapidly because of climate change in that case um lake victoria is not actually shrinking it's actually at the level of lake victoria it had been declining for years but in the last couple of years there's been excessive rainfall and the level's gone gone right up um yeah so lake chad i mean the big game's disappearing all over the all over the continent and that brings in Brings in a lot of export, uh, a lot of foreign exchange, um, and, and is going to do so less as the elephants disappear. I mean, things like elephants have been declining hugely in Tanzania and other places, is because of hunting and you know the illegal wildlife trade. Um, and then, as you say, DRC is about to auction off vast swathes of rainforest to um, oil companies, um, which is a bit of a worry. But you can kind of understand their argument, saying you know you're stopping us from um drilling for oil but you've been drilling for oil for as as europeans and north americans for you know 100 years um and why why should we not do it we've got people we need to feed the trouble is they're saying that the government but the government won't use that revenue to help feed its people it will use the its people, right. to feed itself Um the, right. the members of the government and its cronies and it'll end up in banks in london and switzerland so it's a, uh, it's a disingenuous uh, argument <laughs>
0: It's so frustrating. It is so frustrating. These stories can be so frustrating. I mean, I look to Brazil and the deforestation with the government there, and and we're going to lose the Amazon here pretty quick. And I I feel helpless. But telling these stories, I think, is important. And to any of our listeners, we always try to put positive spin on a lot of this because we don't want people to get, you know, too down in the dumps and be like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. All it does to me is it just puts a fire in my belly and say, okay, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, did I do anything today to, to help these animals and these government, you know, these environments and, and even the locals, you know, did, did, did I do anything to, to help them? So it can be frustrating, Mark. Mm-hmm. I don't,
1: <laughs> uh, uh, a couple it's not, more it's questions. Not impos- it's, it's not impossible situation though. I spoke to a conservationist conservationist on lake malawi the other day and by involving um local there there had been a much lesser of a problem because there wasn't nile perch there but uh, local fish had been declining because of overfishing but by um involving local people in managing the lake and in you know sanctioning those who broke laws and stuff rather than the government doing this they managed in bits of lake malawi to greatly restore the fishing population and the fishing industry it's kind of much smaller scale than lake victoria but it is possible to Um, rescue these lakes and Lake Victoria is a bit more difficult because it's three countries and it's massive Um, but you know there are examples even just you know a few hundred miles away in Lake Malawi of fisheries being restored by local well action led by local people
0: No. Yeah. There are, there are good stories out there. And uh, it just made me think of the Whitley award winners we interviewed last year. Uh, Some of these people are just doing some incredible work and we're going to try to get uh, this year's winners uh, interviewed again uh, out of there, the UK. And there are people doing some incredible work. I mean, incredible work. It's just these governments that just like, oh, they, they, they frustrate me sometimes, especially being an American Mm and seeing what's going on in my home country. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your other books. If you can just kinda enlighten us of what about what, what they're about. I mean, there was African Beauty and the, the what was it, the ringtone and the drum?
1: Yeah, the ringtone and the drum. The ringtone and the drum was a travel travel book about West Africa. Um travel traveled around for six months, right, meeting people, writing about the history and the politics, um, and having you know, having long chats with local people about life in what's a very poor region. Um so that was nonfiction. And then African Beauty is a fiction book. It's a sort of satire of um, foreign involvement, Western involvement in Africa and aid workers and stuff and all the high jinks they get up to over there in the name of um, doing good and uh, saving the world and all the sort of dark the dark side of saving the world. So that was a novel and then the Saviour Fish is a nonfiction book about Lake Victoria. All right,
0: all right, all right, all right. Well, I, I could probably tell. There's probably some life experience there too and uh, things that, <laughs> yeah. that you've been able to uh, to see. So is there anything else you're working on or any of the projects that you'd like to mention?
1: Um, not at the moment, no. I'm kind of thinking about my next move. I'm back in London. I, had to, I was living in Sudan before COVID and we got evacuated from Sudan because right, of COVID yeah. and because the airport yeah. closed. So I'm now kind of thinking about what to do next. Um, i yeah, like get back world- to Africa as soon as possible. Um, as the world tries to open up right yeah yeah mm. yeah. yeah so I'm mainly yeah. concentrate on other work at the moment i yeah, consultancy work okay i think good, about good, good, good. Whether, whether to write another book or not? yeah no please do
0: please do it was it was it, you know it's, a, it, it's the the again for our listeners the savior fish life and death on africa's greatest lake it it's just it it's an eye-opening experience um because, uh, you know, it does have the conservation uh, story in there, but a lot of it too is just the locals. And I, I really felt like I was living there with you. So it, it was just very enjoyable to read that. And it just made me excited to go, okay, this is definitely one of the my top priority places to get is East Africa and uh, that region of the world. So, so thank you for writing the book and, and sharing with us today. Is there... Anywhere where our listeners can follow you on social media or any websites you'd like to promote?
1: I'm on Twitter, uh, MarkWeston1919. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, that's it, really. I'm just, just Twitter. I've tried to reduce my exposure to social media over the years. So, yeah, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, smart where man. I, where I, most, I mostly write about African issues on there. Um, yeah, that's it, really.
0: I know it's it's tough to get away from it, but yeah, mm. I, I feel you. I feel you. And then it, you know, where can people get the book? I, I imagine almost uh, anywhere online. Any,
1: yeah. yeah, anywhere online. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Amazon, Waterstones, Barnes and, Barnes and Noble, all the all the main site book depository. I think I had some friends in New Zealand who bought it on the book depository.
0: Um, yes. Is, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're okay. here. well, I was lucky because I had the author send it to me. So thank you. That <laughs> <laughs> was great. I remember I, I was excited when I opened it. I was like, "Oh, he did send it!" And um, you know, it, it just uh, it was enjoyable to read. And, and thank you so much for for reaching out and and telling this story. And I know our listeners uh, will enjoy listening to you and learning about this. Um, you know, they're they're all you know, conservation enthusiasts and, and really care about the earth. So I I, I could feel that from your book about the people, how you care about the people and what's going on there. So thank you so much for being
1: on today. Thanks very much for having me.